Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. And I've got a really great guest today, Rob Wolf. Uh, he's a two-time New York bestselling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. He's a former research biochemist and one of the world's leading experts in paleolithic nutrition. And uh, he's transformed the lives, uh, you know, my notes say tens of thousands of people, but I would bet it's hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. Uh, he's got a top-ranked iTunes podcast. Uh, seminar series and a great all-around guy to talk to. So, Rob, thanks for coming. Hey, huge honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Well, um, tell me uh, a little bit about your background. What got you interested in this whole world of, uh, you know, of nutrition and health? And, uh, you know, hopefully it's not a bad personal experience, but just tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah. You know, I've always been kind of a, a science geek, but also pretty interested in athletics. So I was a California state powerlifting champion. I dabbled in Thai boxing. I, I still do some old guy Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And, um, but I was raised in a family that was pretty unhealthy. Both of my parents smoked. My dad drank a lot. Uh, my mom had what we now recognize as being kind of a interwoven complex of autoimmune diseases, mainly uh, rheumatoid arthritis being kind of the central feature. But, you know, I, I looked at how my parents ate and lived and didn't exercise. And it didn't look like a lot of fun. It looked pretty horrible. I actually ended up doing diabetic wound care on my dad's foot as he lost a toe mm-hmm. and then part of the foot and then everything below the knee. And so I've always been tinkering and fiddling with with how I eat to improve my performance and whatnot. And, you know, during college, it, it this was quite a long time ago. I'm 46 going on 47. So it was a good, good long while ago. But you know, this idea of kind of a a lower fat vegetarian or vegan type diet was really gaining some some foothold, particularly in areas like, uh, you know, college campuses and whatnot. And so I I gave that a shot. And I think that a, a vegan diet can be incredibly appropriate for some people. But for me, and it's funny, I've, I've learned this painfully over the course of time, both kind of genetic and epigenetic things that I, I have going on make me a very low uh, uh, probability of success candidate for a, a super, you know, grain legume based uh, diet. I ended up developing ulcerative colitis from from eating that way. And there was also a ton of other issues. Uh, I was in a graduate program. I thought I only needed three hours of sleep at night. Um, was still trying to train really hard, even though I, I was effectively suffering a malabsorption condition. I'm about 175 pounds, reasonably lean, reasonably muscular. Um, at the low ebb, uh, kind of worst, you know, manifestation of my ulcerative colitis, I was about 130 pounds, and I was oh, wow. putting food down my mouth as fast as I could do it, but I, I literally wasn't absorbing anything, and and I didn't really know what else to do. But we discovered that part of my mom's health issues uh, were, were related to an autoimmune condition uh, uh, called celiac disease, which is a gluten reactivity. And gluten's a protein found in wheat, rye, oats, barley, millet, and a bunch of other things. And her rheumatologist was of the opinion that my mom was pretty reactive to not just 
uh, gluten-containing items, but also dairy and probably most legumes. And so I'm chatting with my mom on the phone, and she's describing this to me, and I'm running this through my head, and I'm like, okay, no greens, no legumes, no dairy. What on earth do you eat if you don't eat that? You know, and I mean, I, I, I was vegan, so I wasn't doing dairy. But I was like, no grains, no legumes. What the heck do you do? And this was in 1998. And it was kind of funny. It was almost a kind of uh, gestalty, like, you know, weird consciousness deal. But some part of the back of my head said, man, that's, you know, grains, legumes and dairy. That's all agriculture stuff. And what did humans eat before agriculture? How did they live? Well, they were hunter gatherers. And so I went in to my my uh, office and I waited for the dial up to turn on. And there was this new search engine called Google. And it literally was new at that point. And into Google, wow. I put this term paleolithic diet. And I found a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. Uh, one guy, Lauren Cordain, who ended up being my mentor for a, a good period of time and is really kind of the, the, the more modern day founder of this paleo diet concept. And then an economist named Arthur Devaney, Art Devaney. And Art at the time arguably had far more material generated um, on this topic. And I just kind of started tinkering and following this stuff and modified my diet along this uh, kind of low carb, but honestly more of a, a ketogenic diet type of uh, macronutrient ratio at that time, I ended up grabbing an Atkins book of all things that was actually incredibly helpful and informative for all this. And so I, I just shifted from a vegan diet. And my, my first meal not being vegan in several years was a, a plate of ribs and a small salad and it all digested great and I felt fine. And now 20 something years later, you know, I, I, uh, have been very fortunate to work with a lot of folks and have tinkered with a lot of different iterations around this kind of ancestral heating, eating model. So, all right, what does the uh, ancestral eating model look like? You know, what are some of the basic things that you eat and don't eat? And then uh, I want to go more in depth on it. Man, that that's, we could maybe look at that as a little bit of a layered system because th this is where like religious wars are, are fought over this topic. But if we, if we draw kind of a circle around what we might call a paleo type diet, by exclusion, again, what we're mainly avoiding are grains, legumes, and dairy. Like those are pretty well recognized to be uh, these, these Neolithic foods. And for the most part, humans didn't eat a whole lot of those uh, until comparatively recently in our evolutionary past. Now, some things like dairy are interesting in that uh, multiple places around the world, different populations developed dairying practices, uh, sometimes in cattle, sometimes in sheep, sometimes in different critters. And all of these folks developed different strategies for uh, uh, beneficially adapting to this change. Like they had lactase persistence where they, uh, most humans um, lose the ability to digest lactose after their children. And by the time they're in adulthood, uh, they, they can't digest lactose. Uh, virtually anybody who is Asian derivative uh, cannot handle lactose in ad adulthood. But there are a few populations that do. And so this is an example of where um, when there's a really good survival advantage, like if there's a new un untapped food source or something like that that can be exploited, um, human evolution can actually happen very, very quickly. And this is one of the things that the early um, discussions and writings around the paleo diet 
got wrong was this uh, now archaic idea that uh, human evolution happens in a, a very, very slow process. And in fact, when there is a, a powerful selection process that occurs, like with um, uh, certain diseases like sickle cell anemia, uh, providing a really powerful um, benefit against malaria, um, it can take a, a couple hundred years and you can have a population go from effectively no one with this genetic trait to perhaps like 90 to 100 percent of people with a, a particular genetic trait if the selection process is is sufficiently powerful. So, and I'm sorry, I'm getting off in the weeds a little bit, but, you know, this ancestral health sure. model kind of starts with this kind of paleo diet kernel that is built around lean meat, seafood, roots, shoots, tubers, seasonal vegetables, nuts and seeds. Um, there's all kinds of contention around uh, the relative protein carb fat ratios of, of what that would ideally look like. I think that that depends a lot on your own individual genetics and, and you know, volume of exercise and a host of other things. But then once we get outside that bubble, we have what might be called like an unprocessed organic Neolithic diet where people are actually eating legitimately whole grains. Like when they say a whole grain muffin, it's a, it's a misnomer. You have to grind the grain to turn it into flour to make it into a muffin. But, you know, we, when we look at a lot of these uh, blue zones and, and places that have some pretty interesting longevity characteristics, these folks are eating whole grains, are eating legumes, are eating dairy but they tend to be very minimally processed. And if they are processed, usually they're, they're soaked, fermented, sprouted. Um, they, they are uh, processed in a way that makes them um, both more nutrient dense, but also easier to digest. And that's kind of, you know, the, maybe the main bubble that you would put around that concept of ancestral eating is maybe at the, the, the core or the nucleus would be this kind of paleo diet concept. And then a layer outside of that would be um, what, what a Michael Rose has called an organic Neolithic diet. You know, it's, it's whole grains, legitimately whole grains, whole, whole legumes, uh, appropriately processed dairy. And then beyond that, we start getting into what would be the modern food environment, which includes seed oils, highly processed um, grain products, uh, high fructose corn syrup and all these things that really are very evolutionarily novel. And I, I think it's hard to find anybody that wouldn't agree that these things probably present some problems for human health. So, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So in our current environment, knowing how people are, knowing that as you drive around, and if you're mobile a lot of the time, you know, you're at work or you're driving, the stuff around you is going to be mostly processed. What is your recommendation in terms of you know, a, an idealized way of eating, given, again, our current environment and our current circumstances? You know, what are yeah, some tactics you know, or techniques that, that people should do? Um, man, it, 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 it's tough because you, you always want to take uh, individual circumstances into consideration and whatnot. But I guess in general, like if somebody is reasonably healthy, uh, they don't suffer from, say, like an autoimmune or a gut-related issue, um, I would still generally recommend, let, let's assume that we eat three meals a day, seven days a week, that's 21 meals a week. Let's say that um, maybe two meals a week, but you know, maybe you can kick your heels up and it's some sort of processed grain product like pizza or a sandwich or a dessert or something like that. But I would really make a pretty strong case that the other 
you know, 18, 19 meals a week should probably be out of this kind of, kind of paleo-esque scene, um, uh, uh, good protein sources, uh, fat sources from avocados, nuts, seeds, if those are well tolerated, um, fruits, vegetables, root shoots, tubers being kind of the, the, the mainstay. Um, if somebody has a health condition like an autoimmune disease or, or gut issues, or, or maybe some other kind of systemic inflammatory issue, they probably need to be pretty tight with their dietary approach and stay much closer to that kind of kind of orthodox paleo approach, maybe even something like a ketogenic diet. So I, I would say that there is some variability within that that story. But in general, I would try to steer people more towards, you know, I, I, I think Greg Glassman, the founder of CrossFit, uh, coined this term meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds, some fruit, little starch, no sugar. And I think that that's a, a good way to look at this. And, you know, even for myself, I travel a, a fair amount. Um, if I hit a hamburger joint, I get a hamburger without a bun. I try to get uh, extra veggies and lettuce with it, you know, a couple of pickles. Um, I'll get a coffee, maybe a decaf coffee. If it's after about three o'clock in the afternoon, I'll get a regular one if it's a little bit earlier than that. And so even while on the road, um, that's a pretty easy thing that I can track down almost anywhere. And by ditching the bun, ditching the French fries, um, you know, I, I really can kind of stack the deck in my favor. And even though the meat quality maybe isn't the best, the oils that these things are cooked in are, are not perfectly ideal. Um, it's still a, a better option overall than having still those same things, plus the bun, plus the French fries, plus a, a milkshake and, and that whole story. Yeah, I've, I've, when I look at meals now, I, I kind of look at them that way. How can you um, make the meal as good as possible? So let's say like you were stuck in an Italian restaurant and you got chicken parmesan. You could have literally like no spaghetti or one bite of spaghetti and, you know, a big cutlet of chicken. And that would be, it would, you know, skew the meal a lot more in, in the right direction. Then, like you said, yeah, uh, you know, it, burger, fries, shake, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, places like Italian restaurants, Mexican restaurants, oftentimes people feel like they, these are really difficult to navigate. But both of those places, um, let's say you're having some sort of a, a, a pasta based meal with, with some sort of a sauce. Most places are more than happy to grill up a bunch of veggies, put a bunch of veggies in olive oil, cook that, and then throw your marinara sauce over that. And 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 again, to your point, um, you know, depending on uh, gluten intolerance and whatnot, maybe a couple of bites of a pasta dish may not be that big of a deal. Or if it's the one meal a week that you're kind of kicking your heels up, then not a big deal. But let's say you travel a lot and you need to figure out a way to uh, get some good options. Um, both Mexican restaurants and uh, Italian restaurants, I actually thoroughly enjoy because they tend to have a lot of uh, vegetables. These tomato-based products tend to be both very nutritious, but also very tasty. And all I need to do is ask them to uh, to put that stuff over some some veggies that they cook. So, what, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people in the health world, um, you know, and I'm I'm seeing, you know, a pattern of what seems to work and what doesn't. But I'm always curious about the tough cases. So, you know, what what people have you seen where, you know, they, they seem to be doing everything right. They're probably reporting what they're actually doing. They're not, you know, faking it, but yet they're having problems. You know, maybe they've lost weight and they've plateaued or they can't lose weight or, you know. So what problems do you see in the outliers? You know, what percent do they make up of the people that you've interacted with and any insights in how to help those kind of people? 
Oh, man. So definitely things like sleep and stress can be huge factors in the story, without a doubt. You know, like folks who have shift work, um, police, military, fire, medical professionals, other folks that do shift work. Um, that's a legitimately difficult situation to, to deal with because just the, the nature of shift work, folks tend to become inflamed and insulin resistant and they will have to be that much more fastidious on the rest of their life, their, their exercise, their diet. Um, and, and there's just kind of a reality, like if we want to get somebody really, really lean and they're a shift worker, it's going to be remarkably difficult at some point because the volume of stress that the person is under just from the shift work is, is going to be a really big deal. Um, other life stressors can certainly make these things more challenging. But, you know, it's funny. Um, Maybe three years ago, I might have been much more, I don't want to say forgiving, but I, I, I would have painted this picture as there being much more latitude in problems that could pop up, like hormonal issues and, and things like that. And it's certainly like low thyroid, someone who has undiagnosed Hashimoto's thyroiditis, um, that can be a legitimate problem because their, their metabolic rate is, is you know, markedly lower than what you would normally expect. But I've hung out with a couple of guys, which they either one of them or both of them would be amazing for the podcast. Uh, Luis Villasenor and Tyler Cartwright, they're the founders of a program called Keto Games. And I've seen these folks work with just thousands of people. And folks will say, I'm doing everything right. I'm not losing weight. And they will hold these folks' feet to the fire. And inevitably, what it, what it ends up boil down, boiling down to is they're overeating. They're, they're doing one meal that they just don't stick into their daily macronutrients. They're like, well, if I don't write it down, it doesn't count. I mean, there's all these crazy um, uh, kind of self-deception things that folks do. But at the end of the day, even though I'm a big fan of low-carb and ketogenic diets, I think there are some amazing metabolic benefits to these these dietary approaches, uh, particularly for, for certain folks. Um, there is still a reality that calories matter. And if folks are just fundamentally overheating it, it, it's, you know, the weight loss goal, the systemic inflammatory improvements, they're just not going to happen the way that they should. So I would say something like 99.5% of people or, so, you know, some number like that, if they are, if, if the goal is weight loss or body composition change, they're doing something wrong with their total caloric load. And it could be that they're eating too little protein. And so they're kind of consistently hungry. There's this concept called the protein leverage hypothesis that puts this idea forward that most organisms try to eat to a protein minimum. And it's because protein-rich foods, whether it's clover for cattle or like uh, meat and seafood for humans, protein-rich foods tend to be very nutrient-dense. And so it, both within our hormonal system and also the way that the brain regulates our, our energy status it senses kind of the protein intake that, that we have. And if we hit a, a kind of a minimum level of protein intake, we tend to be satiated and tend not to eat more. Whereas if we are under eating protein, and you can find a lot of different camps where uh, they recommend a very low protein intake, both, ironically, both from kind of the vegan camp and also um, constituents within the, uh, the ketogenic diet camp are protein phobic. They're afraid of things like insulin-like growth factor and mTOR. And I think that they've turned these things into boogeymen. And what happens is whether you're eating a high-carb, low-protein diet or a high-fat, low-protein diet, 
if it is too low in protein, you will continue eating other food because you're trying find the, the adequate nutrition for your, your body. And so your, your sense of appetite is just not satisfied. So I, I would say in general, if folks are not achieving body composition changes that they want, they're overeating. And probably the first place to look is adequate protein intake. All right. So it sounds like for better health, you know, whatever that means to people, weight, body composition, or, you know, other factors, maybe blood markers, um, a good start would be you know, a paleolithic nutrition, perhaps keto, but then if they're having problems, uh, you know, they can get specific, maybe one-on-one help with, uh, you know, with someone that knows what they're doing, that they can get them the rest of the way towards their goals. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, using again, uh, and I'm not as zealot about the paleo stuff or the keto stuff. I think it's a, you know, when, when you look at the way that people are generally eating, um, I think you kind of have to give them some home base to start from, (laughs) you know, like uh, you've got to have some, uh, you know, orienting feature. And some people use a vegan diet as an orienting feature. And for some folks, it it works fantastically. Uh, My kind of orienting operating system has been this kind of paleo keto approach. Um, As people tend to get leaner, then I think that a a specifically ketogenic diet is, is typically less and less appropriate, depending on what the person has going on. Um, basically, as you get leaner, your, your car- carbohydrate tolerance probably improves. And ideally, we're being physically active and we could make a case of, of kind of partitioning carbohydrate around that physical activity. But but yeah, you know, it, the, the a basic keto or paleo starting place is is a really good spot because it tends to remove most of the immunogenic foods, like foods that cause uh, allergic or or kind of autoimmune or quasi autoimmune responses tends to reduce the glycemic load, tends to increase the nutrient density. So it ends up ticking a lot of boxes. It's very favorable in a lot of ways. And it's not to say that somebody stays there forever, but man, it's just a really good starting place so that you can kind of kind of assess how things are going. And then again, to your point, if things aren't quite going right, usually you can find somebody who's a a credible coach and interview that person and see if they've worked with people like you who have, uh, you, you know, the uh, challenges that, that you may be describing personally. And that person should be able to give you a good plan about, hey, here's what I think is going on. Here's what we're going to do as an experiment to address that. If we're right, then we can probably expect this. If we're barking up the wrong tree, we actually could probably expect this other outcome. And then we can adjust things as we go along. And then in that way, it should be a really honest process. There shouldn't be any magic, no smoke or mirrors. Like, you know, uh, uh, the human physiology is is very complex, but there are are absolutely predictable kind of consequences and outcomes when we we put certain inputs into the, the system. So what do you think is the easiest way for someone to to track their food? Just take pictures of everything they eat or are there certain apps or any recommendations there? You know, so so again, re- referring back to my my friends over at Keto Gains, they have this thing called the macronutrient calculator, which is is setting you up for a ketogenic diet. But it, it, it's a good good thing to use as an example. Uh, you go to the, their website. You can you can just look uh, Keto Gains macronutrients, and then you'll you'll find the website. But you input um, your weight, um, you estimate your body fat, and it's very easy to do that. You can pull up. Uh, uh, some of these um, people have put together both cartoon 
and real life pictures of people at different body fat percentages. And you're like, oh, I'm about there. And maybe estimate a little bit on the high side. So you have your weight, you have your body fat based off that. Then we, we get a rough idea of what your lean body mass and your fat mass is. From that, we can have some general ideas about what your daily um, basal metabolic rate is, like just the, the bare minimum calories to keep you alive. Like if you were in an intensive care unit, that's what, what would keep the lights on for you. And then from there, you can layer in your physical activity. If you have a really active job, you work in a warehouse and you're running and picking stuff all day, then you're going to be super active. If you're like me, you tend to be more sedentary in general, but you may have some fairly active uh, periods of time, like doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, so you can you can adjust all that. That'll give you a basic recommendation, both with regards to the amount of protein, carbs, and fat to eat in a given day. And then from that, you, you've got a basic caloric load. From there, what I recommend that folks do is they figure out a couple of foods that they eat and they like, and they figure out how to weigh and measure the appropriate amount for those, those foods or those meals. So let's say you figure out two or three breakfasts, two or three lunches, two or three dinners. And it's not to say you eat this way forever, but just in the beginning, this really makes it easy for people because once you figure out what six ounces of chicken breast or chicken thigh look like and you know how many times a day you need to eat that like you very quickly get to where they can eyeball that stuff so if you start off first with a good prescription and then really limit your food options initially it makes it easier to shop it makes it easier to prep meals and maybe you give yourself like two weeks where you're you're kind of eating the same breakfast same lunch same dinner throughout that time or maybe you've got a rotating you know, kind of kind of uh, template that you use. Um, it, it, something that folks really overlook is just changing a vegetable or an herb or spice completely changes a meal. And I, I have this thing called mm. the food matrix, mm. and you can go search Rob Wolf food matrix and track this thing down. But if you imagine uh, like chicken breast, broccoli, olive oil, garlic, chicken breast, broccoli, olive oil, ginger, chicken breast olive oil, broccoli, cayenne pepper. So mm. if we kept everything else the same, the chicken breast, the broccoli, the olive oil, our basic macronutrients are going to be identical because the difference between garlic versus ginger versus cayenne pepper is trivial. There's, there's virtually no you, you know, protein, carb, fat difference there. But I tell you what, the difference in each one of those meals is absolutely stunning. And so you can start with a very basic template of, say, like two protein sources, maybe three protein sources that you're familiar with, um, you know, how much of that you need. Uh, you could, if you've got a, a, you know, a macronutrient allotment, protein, carbs, fat, and a total caloric load, you could do something crazy, like just divide it by three and eat three balanced meals throughout the day. Like people do all kinds of crazy stuff, like um, um, stacking more calories post-workout and everything. And that's fine. But Honestly, that that is um, that's getting the final like one or two percent, whereas doing all this other work is the main 90 percent like that 80 20 rule. That's where you're getting all the benefit. But in that way, we're starting at a, a benchmark that we can assess, like, is this calorie load appropriate for me? Is this protein, carb, fat load appropriate for me? We're, we're going to experiment and test that. And then we start with a very simple meal template built around a couple of proteins, a couple of vegetables, some fat sources. And then, you know, having a really a, a aggressive assortment of seasonings 
makes that process really easy because, again, you know, garlic versus ginger versus cayenne versus fennel, that's an entirely different meal, but you're only changing the, that one final variable. Yeah, that's a smart way to do it. That's really cool. It, it was uh, an answer that I, I kind of developed. I, I, I don't know if I, I mentioned this earlier, but we, we co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world, like not not down the street, but actually in the world, like the, the first one. CrossFit North in Seattle was the first affiliate gym back in 2003. And then um, when I opened the, the gym, uh, NorCal Strength and Conditioning in 2004, um, we had to really figure out how to make this stuff easy for folks. And people didn't know how to cook and they didn't want to waste meals and they wanted to save time. And so it was one day I had a client and she said, you know, I'm just bored with this stuff. And in the back of my head, I had always done this kind of, um, a template of of having, you know, protein, veggies, fat, and then I would just tweak the spice and it was an entirely different meal. And so I drew this out on the board for her. And it, it, like, if you do five proteins, five veggies, five fats, five spices, it's something like 625 different meals. I, I forget what a five by five matrix is. Wow. I think it's 625. But, but, you know, if you ate only one of those meals a day, you wouldn't see the same meal again for two years, basically, you know, and, and if you get a list of say like five or six proteins, 20 veggies, five oils right. and, and, you know, and fats, and then like 30 spices, you end up with like a hundred thousand different meal combinations off that. And this is all something that you could easily keep in your kitchen. And some of these things are going to be terrible, you know, like a salmon, avocado, lard plus uh, uh, cinnamon or allspice. Like, that, that sounds horrible. I'm just trying to think of something that sounds horrible. But, but there's enough know, variation. And by the time you come back around to the original ones, you know, you're uh, 300 years old. So there's plenty of variation. Exactly. Yeah. So if one of the meals sucked, it's going to be a long time before you see it. If you really liked one, then you're going to have to wait a long time to get it. Yeah. But, but there's just, yeah. you know, within most people's pantry, they have a shocking amount of food options in there. They just haven't really kicked the tires on on how to make those those variables very easy to manage. So um, what about diet? I mean, not sorry, not diet, uh, exercise. How much of a role does that play in success or failure, no matter how good you're eating? Man, exercise in my mind is about enjoying your life. So I, I would really like to see people do at a, a minimum, this is kind of like the program minimum, um, a day or two a week of a full body resistance strength training program. And this could be like a circuit training thing where somebody goes in and they do a very, you know, like a, you go into a Globo gym and uh, there are there are these selectorized weight machines. You, you pick a bench press movement and you put it at a very low weight and you do maybe 20 reps and then you add some more weight and you do 15 or 20 reps and you add some more weight and then you get six and you add a little more weight and get a hard four and then you move on to another movement. You go from a push to a pull to a lower body thing. You maybe do that a a couple of different ways and that's it for your day. Like it should be 15, 20 minutes max. And by doing it like that type of approach, I think is kind of the greatest return on investment for effective, graceful aging and being really, you know, able to kind of do anything that you want to do with your life. And the the return on investment of, of strength training and also just kind of uh, aerobic training in general 
it, it beyond about an hour a week of it, either activity, um, like a, an individual doing about an hour, hour and a half a week of strength training within a year, maybe a year and a half could get to a double body weight deadlift, maybe a body weight and a half um, uh, back squat, uh, maybe three quarters, one half to three quarters of a, a body weight standing press, maybe a body weight and a quarter bench press. And unless you're specifically a strength athlete, you know, a, a shot putter or football player, somebody that really needs to live in a power athletics world, you, you're plenty strong to do just about any damn thing that you want to do. And that that's with the, just a paltry amount of, of training. And to get much beyond that, you really need to invest significantly greater amounts of time. So that, that will you know, kind of return on investment is is very rapid and requires very little effort. Um, doing a little bit of aerobic training, both both steady state, um, you know, cardio, and that could be putting on a weight vest and going for a walk. It could be doing a little bit of jogging or 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 uh, swimming or you know other aerobic activity. But you know, the physical activity thing, there's just no doubt that people age more gracefully and can do more things if they're stronger and fitter, but it doesn't take a lot to be way stronger and way fitter than what we would be if we were just kind of, kind of couch bound. And it's interesting that you, you would, one can achieve a remarkable amount of what their genetic potential is with a, a very modest uh, strength training protocol, very, very modest in time, very modest in, in demands. And then to get beyond that again, like it, 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 it becomes very uh, labor intensive. And so like my, my program, I do a little bit of movement throughout the day, the way I've been doing things, maybe the last six months. So out my garage, I have a pull-up bar, I have a dip station, I have a squat rack that has some weight on it. I have a hip bridge station and I'll do some work for 20 or 30 minutes and I'll get, get up and go out there and either do a quick circuit of each one of those things, or maybe I just hit one of those things. And then I come back in and do some more work. And then um, I, I do that sometimes five days a week, sometimes two days a week. You know, it's, it's really pretty variable. But in doing that, like I can still do a one arm chin up. I can do handstand push ups. Um, I, I had a back injury about eight years ago. And so my leg strength is, is not where it, it used to be, but, um, all of this stuff allows me to do my, my main passion, which is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu four to five days a week. And, uh, I'll take my dog walking and, and go hiking with my girls and I'll, uh, put on a weight vest that's 40 pounds and I'll go stomp around with them. And that's how I get my cardio done. And that's with, great. uh, uh, yeah, I mean, with a very modest uh, time input, I'm strong enough and have good enough cardio that, you know, I can, I roll with people 80, 100 pounds heavier than myself and 20 years younger, and I, I motor right along with them. Uh, I, I don't do a super athletic game. I'm never going to win a world championship. I'm not, not doing one of these super fast paced games. I do a very uh, relaxed, efficient game, but I mean, I can get in and do a two hour jujitsu class and roll with 10 or 15 people and I'm tired at the end, but I can get up and do it again the next day. And again, I'm, I'm knocking on the door to 50 years old, you know? So uh, I I really like people to use their strength and conditioning to facilitate doing other things. If you really love being in the gym, then that's great. But honestly, like a a little bit of my soul dies when somebody only does the gym scene because there's so many other cool things to do. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. It's 
I'm not looking for an excuse for anybody, but I'm sure, you know, there's people that say, oh, you just got to work out and that's all you need to be in good shape. And then there's people that are hoping, oh, as long as I eat well, I don't need to work out. So what would you say to, you know, people that espouse one of those opinions? Man, I, in general, I think that folks can have a better overall quality of life, have lower likelihood of, uh, say, like, one of the things that is most dangerous as we age is losing enough muscle mass that if you fall, you break something or you can't get up. Like, I, I don't know how old you are. You might remember the I've fallen and I can't get up <laughs> TV yeah. commercial, you know, but um, it's interesting, you know, yep. in the West, a remarkable number of people end up so sarcopenic, so uh, uh, depleted of muscle mass that, um, you know, we might still have the lights on upstairs. We can still think um, maybe our, our cardiovascular system is still reasonably healthy but we are so weak that we become institutionalized because we're we're dangerous to ourselves because of weakness. So, and again, it doesn't take much to do this. Now you could do something at home, like just doing air squats and kind of like, you know, jumping up in the air. So you get a little bit of power generation or maybe God forbid, you know, you spend a couple of hundred bucks on a basic dumbbell set and you could do like goblet squats or, dumbbell swings or something like that, but you can do, um, you know, walking lunges, walking lunges up a hill, push-ups, pull-ups, um, handstand push-ups, bear crawls, you know, there's all kinds of calisthenic activities, and man, there's dozens, if not hundreds of Facebook groups and personalities that do body weight only, you know, workouts, all this stuff is for free. And so, you know, it's definitely a personal preference, but this is just one of the, it's preventative maintenance, you know, like you could never change the oil in your car. You could never check the wiper fluid and you could probably drive your car for 50 or maybe even a hundred thousand miles. But then when it fails, it's going to fail catastrophically, you know, like it's really going to go Whereas a little bit of preventative maintenance, whether we're talking about a car or just our, our physicality, really goes a long ways. And so, you know, we have examples of people that have generally, you know, they've never really like exercised. Maybe they walk from point A to point B or, they, you know, they do a little bit of yard work and they do fine. They live into advanced age and, and they're OK. But again, just a little bit of a, a hedge against aging. And in particular, like once you get a past about 30 years of age, we, we have a, a declining vector where we're losing power production. We lose the big motor neurons that, that provide the most power production for our, our big motor motor units and our, our in particular our legs but throughout our whole body there's a decline with that but there's a reality that if you are strength training that decline starts from a much higher place and it declines at a, a, a flatter curve so you're going to die at some point you're going to be decrepit potentially at some point but what what it looks like is just a modest amount of physical activity, flattens out that that um, morbidity curve such that you're going to get into very advanced age and then probably die from something else, but you're still going to be reasonably physically sound. So it's really hard for me to, to, um, to give a pass on not doing some kind of basic physical maintenance, you know, some squats, some lunges, push-ups, even if it's against the counter. Um, when we first started our, our gym, uh, uh, gymnastics rings were like $200 a set. And so we bought come along straps from an auto parts supply place. It costs $4 for a set of straps. 
And then we bought two Nyla Bone dog shoe rings that were $4 each. And that was our first set of rings at NorCal Strength and Conditioning. And I still have those oh, wow. in my garage gym. And my girls use them because they're four and six. And so for a, a tiny investment, you know, you could do body rows and, and work a progression towards pull-ups. You can do a push-up just about anywhere. You can squat. You can lunge. So, again, you know, I, I, I guess um, I'm being shifty and not answering specifically yes or no the, the question, but I, I just really would encourage people to, um, to consider that a little bit of physical maintenance would go a long ways in, in, in you know, supporting a, a higher quality of life. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. What if, you know, again, it's not a great question, but I'm just curious if, if I said to you, uh, just throw out a percentage of importance, genetics, uh, eating right, and exercising. What percentages would you assign, and how would they change with age? Oh, man, that, that, uh, that's a really good question. I would say genetics play at best a 20% role, and the rest of it is sleep, food, exercise. And uh, interesting, and another guy you might, might consider uh, getting on the show, Dr. Michael Rose, he makes a case that as we age, um, the nutritional quality and, and uh, the, ironically, something that looks more akin to a paleo type diet, that as we age, um, it becomes more and more important to eat better and to, main, to do that physical maintenance. And so at, at best, uh, and this is where epigenetics come into play, like the way that our genes are actually turned on and off. And so at best, your genetics probably play about a 20% factor in like your overall health, unless somebody has like a specific genetic condition. And clearly that, that kind of changes things. But um, the, the food, the sleep, um, gut microbiome, uh, social connections, uh, having an inadequate social connectivity and social support is as negatively impactful on health as a pack a day smoking habit. So like that's really important and part of the reason like things like yoga and crossfit and and martial arts are really valuable for people because they get physical activity and uh, kind of social connectivity but i would say that those other things probably account for like 80 percent of of kind of the value that we're going to have throughout our life well that's good i mean the people that say it's mostly genetics i think they're just looking for an excuse to not do anything or to give up you know right 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 absolutely and, you know, it, even folks that look real good genetically, um, oftentimes there are, are some under the hood things that they have going on that bad diet, bad lifestyle end up catching up with them at, at some point. And so even the, the more genetically talented folks in, in our midst, uh, uh, they, the stuff matters and it definitely matters more and more as you get older and older. Yeah, and I guess, all right, so, um, so what do you see as the near term future and trends in uh, you know, in eating and diets, do you see it going in a positive direction, or are we just, you know, for the vast uh, percentage of the population, they're just continuing on eating processed foods and things aren't going to change? I mean, what do you see as like the mega trends out there right now? Oh man, um, this this may get out in the weeds a little bit, and folks may throw on some tinfoil hats for, for protection, but uh, <laughs> I think there's there's a little bit of a bifurcation here. Like, there, on the one hand, we're going to have more and more personalized medicine and personalized nutrition. And this is a really fascinating area. And there, it, it, if you remind me, I'll send this to you. It would be really good for the, the show notes. 
but it, the, it makes the case that um, with this era of personalized medicine, what do these big population-wide studies even matter? And if you, if you think about it like this, um, it, it's very reasonable for uh, if we were to do a study on a, a blood pressure medication, just as an example, uh, we put 100 people on this blood pressure medication, and it would not be surprising at all that um, 33 and a third people see a 10-point drop in blood pressure on average, uh, 33 and a third see a 20-point drop on blood pressure, and then 33 and a third see no drop in blood pressure at all from this drug. Now, the challenging thing is that what happens then, and this is within the evidence-based medicine crowd, which evidence-based medicine is really cool on the one hand, but it's, it's a religion and almost a cult on the other in the way that they, they tackle things. Because once you re-aggregate all of that data, it doesn't really matter what that data is for you. Like it matters who you are and how you individually respond in that situation, whether we're talking about a blood pressure medication, whether we're talking about a dietary intervention. And so to try to, to do things like reaching statistical significance and try to you know see how broadly something applies to a population we do these these big studies and we try to get lots of numbers, but then we end up aggregating things. And unless you happen to be that person that is right in the middle of that bell curve, the, the, the recommendations may have little to no benefit, maybe even are harmful. And we see this all the time where hmm. medications will go through some pretty complex testing and they look fairly promising. And then when they get out in the broader population, like people, some people may end up dying from these, these medications. My, my dad is a really interesting example. He had been on a, a anti-inflammatory medication called Vioxx for years. And for a lot of people, um, Vioxx was a big problem. Like they ended up with, with cardiac events. And my, my dad's doctor, my, my childhood uh, family doctor, when this information became more broadly available, he sat down and talked to my dad and he's like, you know, my dad had pretty severe um, arthritis in the neck from a, a neck injury, but this Vioxx really seemed to help. And my, what my dad's doctor did was just kind of monitor different inflammatory markers and blood lipids. And he's like, okay, this, this kind of makes me nervous, but you've been on this for a long time and we're just going to, we're just going to motor forward and kind of see how, how you do with it. Well, my, the family doctor went on vacation and my dad went in for a checkup and the, the, the fill-in doctor saw that he was on Vioxx and was like, oh my God, like you, you can't be on that. And so he wrote a prescription for a newer, a next gen uh, anti-inflammatory drug. And my dad was on it for three days and died of a heart attack. Now we oh, don't know. Now my dad for the last 15 or 20 years of his life, I swear every single day was alive. It was borrowed time. Like it's so so this is where, from a, a scientifically grounded perspective, it's very hard to draw very many conclusions. But we do know that looking at NSAID, anti-inflammatory drugs, like they um, they really increase cardiovascular disease potential, particularly like these these fatal cardiac events, like uh, things like ibuprofen are really really problematic. And and Vioxx and some of these other things are are kind of derivative out of that and kind of next gen drugs. But it's interesting for my dad he probably genetically was better suited on that Vioxx, which within a, ge a general population was probably generally a more harmful drug. But for him, it was probably the more appropriate option. 
and and uh, you know shifting him to this next gen drug it, it probably was was the cause of his cardiac event again it's hard to tell he had diabetes he smoked it, it, every day was a borrowed day for for a long time but it's really yeah. interesting and so on the one hand we have a lot of very granular um personalized medicine personalized nutrition uh, there's been promise around like uh, looking at people's genetics and then having a diet and exercise pro- program that addresses their needs. I still think that we're a ways off, but we're starting to get a little bit of granularity on that. You know, like some people that have like a, a low frequency of a, a, a gene called the amylase gene, AMY, um, they don't do well with carbs. They don't break them down well. They don't uh, release insulin effectively. I happen to be one of these people. So I do really well on a lower carb diet. And then there are other people that have a remarkably high amylase gene frequency. And although I would make the case that they would still benefit from doing mainly whole unprocessed foods, they're going to probably do pretty damn well on, on some sort of a, a starchier, higher, higher carb type, type diet. So we will get more and more granular in, in those uh, kind of areas. But it's going to be really interesting for medicine at large because medicine has lived and died for a long time with these big randomized control trials. And there's a there's a big question now whether or not that that's even an, an effective way of finding additional information for medicine. So it's kind of a yeah. controversial topic. Um, and then on the, the flip side is. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, it's just uh, it just, it, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Like the uh, just because a drug has side effects for a certain percentage of the population doesn't mean that you'll get the side effects or you won't get the side effects or that if, uh, you know, a small percentage of a population are really adversely affected that the drug should be pulled. I mean, so there's a lot more to it than just, like you said, the method of a randomized clinical trial and it meets some kind of threshold that's good enough. That's what I'm hearing. Right. In your story. Right. Yeah. And, and an important takeaway with that is most people, including specifically healthcare providers are really comfortable with breaking that story down with regards to pharmaceuticals, but they get really squirrely when you suggest that there may be similar degrees of granularity with diet and exercise. Like they really freak out, you know, and no low fat is the only way or low carb is the only way. And it, it, it's, um, it, it's perplexing, but um, you know, that that's definitely going to be a trend in the future is this idea of kind of personalized medicine, personalized nutrition. Um, Another really problematic feature, though, is uh, the way that our food system has developed since basically 1970 is a a farm subsidies process that makes um, uh, the substrate, the backbone of processed foods, incredibly inexpensive. So, you know, processed grains, uh, uh, sugar extracts, seed oils, um, these things are all kind of an interesting efflux of, of a, a, a farm subsidies program that was that was ramped back up in the 1970s. And we now have a, a, um, a junk food industry that operates at such a shocking degree of sophistication. It, it, it's really amazing. So my, my second book, Wired to Eat, is about the neuroregulation of appetite and basically how we know when we've eaten enough and, and also how mm-hmm. modern what's called hyperpalatable foods basically override our, our appetite control mechanisms. And we can just keep eating and eating and eating. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I, I don't know how I saw this. I was just poking around on the internet and I saw the, this thing for a, a type of chip uh, from Doritos. It's called Doritos roulette. 
And, you know, Doritos on their best of days are pretty, pretty <laughs> tasty chips, but... Maybe it should be Doritos Russian roulette. Well, that, that's what I, I, I kind of joke that. But the roulette thing, the, what they did is in this one bag, there's a, there's a warning on the bag. It says, a warning, some chips are extremely hot. And I was like, no way. So what they're doing is mixing the palate experience for an individual. So if, if you take someone and you, you feed them basically the same type of food, even if it's very good, like if they just have, oh, oh there's a, a great example. Uh, Adam Rickman, he used to have a, a show, uh, Man Versus Food on the, the Food Network. He would do mm-hmm. these eating challenges where he would sit down and eat a whole bunch of, of, you know, whatever it was. But he had this one thing called the, the kitchen sink challenge where he sits down and eats an eight pound ice cream sundae. And if you eat it within a certain amount of time, then you get your name on the wall of fame and all this stuff. But Adam gets maybe a third of the way through this ice cream sundae, and he's totally bogging down. And um, and if you, you do some searching on this, you can find a video for it. And he's actually like turns visibly green and is gagging, trying to get more of this it's down. Terrible. It, 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 it's terrible. It, 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 but what, what he does to, to win this, this event is fascinating. He asked the waitress at the restaurant to cook him some extra salty, extra crunchy French fries. Now, these French fries are as different in palate experience as you could possibly imagine from an ice cream sundae. Salty, Mm. crunchy, umami versus like creamy, cold ice cream. And so what he starts doing is he eats a couple of French fries and then he has a scoop of ice cream and a couple of French fries and a scoop of ice cream. And this allows him to eat the whole ice cream sundae in the standard dietetics model. And I don't want to beat up on dietitians too much, but they're very into this like portion control, but don't make any food off limit. And it's kind of bullshit. Like it it fails people. This this Adam Rickman man versus food episode is such a beautiful example of this because the plate of French fries alone is probably 1500 calories. It was half of a day's caloric intake alone. But it was eating those French fries that allowed him to, to finish the ice cream sundae. So going back to the Doritos roulette example, changing how hot one experiences these chips in a bag, it, it does a couple of things. From the palate experience, you're getting a different palate experience each time. One's real hot, one's medium, one's mild. And then from a dopamine perspective, Having that anticipatory element where like, oh, man, is this going to be the melt my face off chip or what? Mm -hmm. It's the same process that entrains addiction. And so I wrote an email to the folks that that make the Doritos roulette, and I never expected to get a a response. But I wrote them an email. and I was like, hey, I'm a food researcher, and I just wanted to know, um, does the frequency of hot versus medium versus mild chips does it follow a power law distribution? And a power law is where some <laughs> things happen very infrequently and other things happen very frequently. And two days later, I got a response back and two elements of the response were really amazing. The gal said, hey, first, ton of the scientists here love your work and have found so much help from studying your material, which I thought was fascinating. You know, these, these food scientists that basically engineer hyperpalatable foods are getting some benefit from from studying this evolutionary medicine process was one. And then two, she she said, yes, follows a power law distribution. Everybody was super impressed with that. And so here's the thing. Um, the junk food manufacturers are 
super savvy to the concepts of evolutionary medicine, evolutionary psychology, the neuroregulation of appetite. They stick uh, uh, chaos mathematics and, and power law distributions into the, the, the product offerings that they provide. And if I go to a medical conference and present these ideas of power laws and hyperpalatability and this notion that um, it, you know the neuroregulation of appetite is really where the rubber hits the road and this whole idea of eat less, move more is, is ridiculous, they're going to look at me like I have three heads. Whereas the food manufacturers are operating at a level that is so sophisticated and so well-informed that I don't know how we ever really get back out in front of that. Like these, the, the, the makers of potato chips are studying evolutionary biology to make the stuff more addictive and more flavorful. And, and so it's horrible. Is, they're, they're probably all sitting there reading your book, you know, eating healthy and then using the knowledge for evil to, uh, you know, exactly uh, what's going on. Gastro, gastrointestinally enslave the exactly rest Exactly what's going on. Yeah. But I mean, it's uh, if, if folks think about that for a minute, like the junk food manufacturers, Unilever, which is mainly located in the UK, but they, they do uh, products around the world. Four years ago, they allocated like $60 million to evolutionary medicine research to improve the efficacy of their products. So they're, they're looking at this kind of ancestral health, evolutionary medicine, evolutionary biology um, space for ways to better understand how to make, quote, better products. But by better products, what that means is more addictive. And it, while that is going on, we're, we're still in a bit of a battle with the, the you know, the mainstream medical circles um, that are still fighting this idea that a, a higher protein, lower carb diet may be incredibly appropriate for certain people. Um, you, you have uh, dietitians that say, on the one hand, it's disordered eating to exclude whole food groups, which is what they say about, say, like paleo or low carb. But then at the same time, they'll turn around and prescribe vegan diets, which prescribe whole food. Right. So, you, you know. Um, and again, like, I really don't have a dog in the fight on, on the vegan story. Like, I don't think it's appropriate for everybody. I think that there's challenges, but that's true of a ketogenic diet too. Like I have this crazy notion that we can get in and experiment and within maybe a three to six month period, we can kind of find what's optimal for the individual. So I, I really don't have a ton of dogs in that fight. Maybe 10% of the people that we work with at the clinic that, that, that we have here in Reno, it's a lipidology clinic. Maybe 10% of the people there end up on a plant-based vegan diet because of their genetic makeup. They tend to be um, really prone to uh, hypertriglyceridemia, and a high-fat diet is completely inappropriate for them. And, and a vegan diet is great. So it, 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 uh, I know that, that. Yeah, sorry, sorry. No, that's fine. So what? So <clears throat> what's a generic recommendation for people that want to improve their health? Uh, pick a diet. Start on it, see how you feel, get your blood markers tested, and then adjust as necessary. Or is there a better path? Yeah, I mean, and, 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 and even even before the dietary intervention, um, I, I a couple of things. One, I would really look at, at every possible way to improve one's sleep. I would try to go to bed earlier. I would try to sleep more with the seasons. I would try to eat more of my calories generally earlier in the day and further away from bedtime. If people just did that, let's say somebody's like dragging their feet and like, I'm not going to change my diet. What else have you got for me? Um, if Ugh. people just just did a, a better job of of uh, uh, going to 
going to bed earlier, you know, wearing things like blue blockers in the evening, um, getting outside during the day as much as they can, as, as much as possible. And again, eating more of their calories earlier in the day, particularly carbohydrates earlier in the day. I think that that would be a huge win. So let's say the person's unwilling to change any dietary practices. If they just pay a little bit of attention to their circadian biology, like their wake sleep cycles, try to improve sleep and eat a little bit earlier, I think that they're going to notice huge benefits with that. From there, I think okay. that if we just move towards anything approximating a whole foods, largely unprocessed way of eating that has a decent whack of protein, a lot of vegetable matter, and then a minimization of anything that, you know, real processed, you know, anything that's been changed a lot, um, that, that's a good place to start. And from, from there, then we can start getting granular, like do you still have some gut issues? Do you still have some what appears to be systemic inflammatory issues? Okay, maybe we'll try something more akin to a paleo type diet, or maybe even a ketogenic type diet. But if people just pay attention to their sleep, get a little bit of physical activity, and then focus again, you know, um, 19, 18 or 19 meals out of, tw you know, 21 per week are, are whole, mainly whole unprocessed foods. Um, stuff that our grandparents would look at and they're like, yeah, okay, I recognize that as, as being food. You're going to do pretty well with that unless you have some more um, aggressive like health goals, then we, we can get a little more tight and a little more granular or and or if you have some legitimate health concerns. Like, like for me, I have celiac and I have some some other kind of gut related oh. issues that really, you know, I'm I'm just I'm. There's never going to be a day where a, a dark brew beer or a slice of bread are, are going to be worth me being sick for a week. Like it's just never going to happen. But I'll definitely have like some tequila with lime juice and a little bit of, of stevia in that with a NorCal margarita. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll, every once in a while, I'll have some corn tortillas when I go out to Mexican food because corn doesn't doesn't bother me although I'm not super carb tolerant, so I don't do it all the time. I mainly do it after kind of a harder workout. Like, you know, th there are other layers that we can get into, but again, those are really simple starting places. And on the blood work, um, again, like I could uh, ping you a link, um, our, our clinic here in Reno, we have kind of a package that looks at uh, what's called the uh, lipoprotein insulin resistance score, the LPIR score, LDLP, all the standard blood markers, but this is, it's advanced testing and it really gives us a deep look under the hood with, with what people have going on. So I could, I could ping you a link for that if people want to look into um, what, what kind of the, the state of the art in, in advanced testing that really looks at insulin resistance, inflammation, and kind of cardiovascular disease potential. But by looking at insulin resistance, it, it's also looking down the road at a neurodegenerative potential, a host of cancers, like, like uh, reversing that insulin resistant state um, really addresses a lot of different features. Okay. Well, that's, that's super helpful. Well, I mean, we've been going on quite a while. You've got a, a wealth of knowledge. So I wanted to give listeners, uh, you know, some resources. I think I'm sure your two books are a great start. Any other recommendations for people that they want to improve their circumstance, their health circumstance, whatever it may be? Oh, man. Uh, if you go to robwolf.com, I have a ton of free stuff. If you sign up for the newsletter, then I start pinging you all, all kinds of free support material. And it, like I have dining out guides, shopping guides, all that stuff for free. 
Um, my really good friends over at Keto Gains, they also have a remarkable amount of free material to like if you're more interested in specifically a ketogenic diet and how to get going. If you go to ketogains.com, they, they, they also have a paid coaching platform. So if you want more of a, a, a you know, concierge handheld process, they absolutely offer that. And it, it's amazing if you poke around their Facebook group, the Keto Gains Facebook group, the transformations there are just jaw dropping. It's really really amazing but uh those are definitely two two solid resource points for people and uh, again there are some paid options and then about as much free material as you would ever need to uh to to get going on what you want to want to try to achieve that's great well rob i really appreciate you coming on the podcast and being so open about your circumstance your family's circumstance and your opinions and uh you know it's been really great talking to you i really appreciate it Huge honor being on your show. Thank you so much for for considering me and letting me come on. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.